Christ, in Lord's Day, is found in Proverbs 20, verse 1. And therein we read these words. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In addressing the use of wine in our daily lives, we must always begin, I would submit, with at least three foundational principles. And I want to list these uh, principles before we actually begin to look at the text in Proverbs 20, verse 1. The first principle that I would submit to you is foundational is this. Material substances are not evil in and of themselves. First, we must declare that material objects were not evil before the fall of man. <clears throat> to declare that God created from the very beginning that which was evil is in effect to make God, the infinitely holy God, the author of sin, which is obviously blasphemous. To the contrary, after God had created all things, we find this testimony in Genesis 1.31 and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good. You see there was it is the dualism of ancient Greek philosophers and Gnostic religious false teachers rather than the Bible that have proposed that which is material is evil and that which is spirit is good. The same dualism, I would submit, is evident many times unwittingly in the statements of professing Christians which refer to wine or alcoholic beverages as being evil. For this dualism uh, actually goes completely contrary to the very definition of sin which we find in the Bible for sin does not reside within material objects. It doesn't reside, dear ones, within wine or, or money or computers or televisions or radios or food or tobacco. Sin according to God's word, is the transgression of the law of God. 1 John 3, 4. We must also add that material objects not only did not and were not evil at the point of creation, but they did not become evil after the fall of man. God did not curse material objects and make all material substance evil and wicked after the fall of man either. If all which is material has become evil due to the curse of God, I would submit that it's just as evil to have a glass of water as it is a glass of wine. Because water is as much material in nature as is one. In fact, this heresy 
leads to the inescapable damnation of every single human being, I would submit, for if all material substance was cursed by God as a result of the fall of man, either we're going to have to say that the body of Christ was sinful or he didn't have a body, of, uh, an actual human body. In either case, his atonement is insufficient to pay and atone for the sins of men. Meaning that we are lost. All that which is material is sinful. We are lost because Christ's body was sinful and he could not have offered to God a sinless sacrifice. The second foundational principle to build upon as we discuss the use of wine is this. It is the abuse of wine that is condemned by scripture. It is not the moderate use of wine that is condemned by God, but the abuse of wine to the point of drunkenness that God condemns in his holy word. It's very clear that there are many passages in the scripture which show the destructive effects of wine. And and the destructive effects and consequences of drunkenness. And it is those particular passages which we, again, claim to in saying that to abuse wine, to, to use wine to an excess, is that which is condemned by God in this word. And even in the passage, our text today, in Proverbs 20, verse 1, I would submit, is speaking of an abuse a sinful abuse, an unlawful use of something which is good. But dear ones, such passages which condemn drunkenness do not thereby condemn the moderate and lawful use of wine or any other material substance. Such passages simply warn us what will happen if we abuse that which is lawful for us to use in moderation. Note carefully that the Lord Jesus clearly states that sin proceeds not from that which we ingest, but it proceeds from our hearts. In Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, beginning with verse 17. And there we read the following. Jesus speaking, Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemy. We could have added drunkenness to that particular list as well. Out of the heart proceed those evils and those sins. If we would say that certain material substances like wine or alcoholic beverages are evil in themselves, but other material substances are not evil of themselves, we've got to have a very good reason why some are evil and some are not evil. 
a biblical reason why some are evil and why some are not evil. But just as wine can be abused to the point of drunkenness, the Bible teaches so too can be abused to the point of gluttony. I don't know too many people who are going to say that, uh, that food itself that provides nourishment for the body is, is evil in and of itself. But yet food, being the good gift that it is from God, can be abused to the point of gluttony. In fact, any material object in this world, I would commit, may be simply abused. But that does not make the material object itself simple. The third foundational principle is this. Scripture alone can define the lawful use and the unlawful abuse of alcoholic beverages. You see, it is not the mere opinions and preferences of men that determine whether the use of an object is sinful or not. But rather it is the revealed will of God in Holy Scripture. You remember the passage in Deuteronomy 29.29? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. It is God's word which reveals to us how to use the material objects that we find in this world. It is our liberty which Jesus Christ himself purchased on the cross for us. Our liberty to be able to use that which God has created in this world for his glory. Even one. According to 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And not only to use it for his glory and his honor, but to enjoy it for our own benefit and profit as well. As stated in 1 Timothy 6.17 where it speaks of God who giveth all things to enjoy. Giveth us all things enjoy, as long as it's for his glory and according to his precepts, according to his guidelines that he's established in his word. Well, this Lord's Day, let us seek to answer briefly the following three questions. What is the unlawful use of wine, first of all? Second, what is the lawful use of wine? And thirdly, are there further restrictions to the lawful use of wine? What is, then, first of all, the unlawful use of wine? We're going to be now looking a little more closely at our text. Solomon begins by personifying wine as a mocker or as a scorner and strong drink as a raging man, that is, as a loud and boisterous fool. Now obviously, as you look at those words, wine and strong drink, as they merely fill a cup or a glass, 
are not a mocker, are not arranging fools. They're just sitting there. They're quiet. They're subdued. One neither has a mind with which to mock, nor a tongue with which to rage. It therefore it could not be the wine itself that is a mocker, nor strong drink itself that is loud and boisterous. These human qualities that we find in Proverbs 20 verse 1 are attributed to wine and strong drink because when they are ingested to excess, their influence is to lead men to that point where they mock and scorn God and man and where they rage out of control the mocking scorner and the raging fool express well the effects of one who is drunk and has lost his ability to control his mind his speech and his actions and in the latter part of verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 20 it is noted by Solomon that one who thinks this will not happen to him if he abuses alcoholic beverages has merely deceived himself and is not wise. Dear ones, likewise, I would offer to you an analogy, an illustration in another realm dealing with material objects to make a point. When we get into our cars, we should realize the consequences of abusing speed and safety of that material object as well. But if we don't take that into consideration, we have, I would submit to you, deceived ourselves into believing we are invincible, and that's not wise. Every good gift given to us by God may be abused, whether it's our family to make idols out of children, a husband, a wife, a mother, a father. Or whether it's our house and that can become to us an idol, if we can abuse that material object. We can abuse, as we've noted earlier, the radio, television, the computer. We can abuse clothing. We can abuse our bodies. Not merely, I mean, one extreme would be to beat them, but the other extreme is to lavish all types of things upon our body. We can even abuse sacraments that are of a material nature, like the Lord's Supper and Baptism. You see, we can abuse anything that's of a material nature. We can abuse the Bible. The, the, the potential, and this is so important that you, you, you get this, this idea. The potential of abusing wine to our own destruction is not unique to wine. The potential of being so deceived that we think ourselves to be indestructible, invulnerable, if we do abuse, is not unique to wine. When we relegate such deception to wine alone, we set ourselves up to be deceived, I would submit, by a hundred other material objects which we believe cannot destroy us if we abuse them. 
What is implicitly condemned, therefore, in Proverbs 20, verse 1, is not the wine or the strong drink itself, but the drunkenness, which actually leads to mocking and raging against God and against man. Note just very, very quickly, there are many passages which we could turn, but I'll just share with you a couple. Note what God says about drunkenness, so that we're not unclear, again, about what God says and how heinous of a sin God considers drunkenness to be. We do not want to minimize the sin of drunkenness in any, in any regard. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 20 and 21, There it says, Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. What I find interesting about this verse is that it is a condemnation of drunkenness, but it is also a condemnation of gluttony. And if we're going to say, as we said earlier, that wine is in and of itself evil and sinful because it leads to drunkenness, we're going to have to conclude as well that food is evil and sinful because it can lead to gluttony. Later on in the chapter, the same chapter in Proverbs 23, beginning with verse 29 and following, and I won't read that the rest of that chapter but it begins like this who hath woe who hath sorrow who hath contention who hath babbling who hath wounds without cause who hath redness of eyes and it goes on to describe one who is intoxicated one who is drunk lingers long over his wine and his, his alcoholic beverages and follows that throughout the day New Testament text that we're no doubt very familiar with is Ephesians 5.18 and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the Spirit. Let us be clear then before moving on that it is not wine or strong drink in itself that is a mocker or a raging fool but rather the one who sinfully abuses wine or strong drink and become drunk that becomes a mocker or a raging fool. The question naturally rises here. When does one reach a drunken state so that he simply abuses wine and strong drink? <clears throat> I don't I hope you don't expect me to define the precise moment at which that occurs because I can't do so. But I can, I believe, offer to you some guidelines that would uh, help you to know when that is, is the case in, in your life or in the life of others. But before listing several of those guidelines, <clears throat> let me say, by way of a general principle, that our liberty in Jesus Christ, and that includes in our use of wine, should not lead us to see how close we can come to the edge of the cliff before falling over. But our liberty in Christ should be such 
that we use it to the glory of God and for our own good and the good of others, but maintain a safe distance from the edge of the cliff so that we don't fall over, slip and fall. I would suggest we have crossed over the line into the sinful abuse of alcoholic beverages. And these, there may be more, but I'm going to give you six things. Now these six guidelines are violated. When, first of all, we cannot control our actions or speech and thereby become mockers, scorners of God, and scorners of man, and raging fools, as stated in Proverbs 20, verse 1. Secondly, I would suggest and submit that we have crossed over the line when we scorn the advice of others around us who warn us that we should stop because we've had enough. But we won't listen to what they have to say. Thirdly, I would suggest that we have crossed over the line when we can no longer think clearly and reasonably so that if an emergency were to occur that we could act appropriately in that emergency situation. You know, that is the caution given to kings and various leaders that they're not to use it in that, while they're serving in that capacity in judgment because it will cloud their judgment. And so, dear ones, when we drink to an abusive amount and our judgment is clouded and we can't respond to an emergency that should occur, we have, I would submit, gone beyond what we should. Fourthly, when we absolutely must have another drink and have it immediately, that is when wine becomes our master rather than our servant, then we have crossed over the line. Fifthly, when we do not want to be around those who exercise discretion in the way that they use wine and alcoholic beverages, but prefer to be around those who abuse wine and alcoholic beverages when we drink. That's not a good sign and a good indication. And sixthly, when we cannot drink to the glory of God, nor for our own blessing, for our own good, good and edification of others who crossed over the line and are abusing alcohol and beverages. These are the excesses and the unlawful use of wine which we must avoid, I would submit, if we would not fall over the edge of the cliff to our own hurt and destruction and to the pain and hurt of loved ones friends. For we never know, and this is something that continually I think we should think about it certainly is something that comes to my mind. We never know where one sin of drunkenness will lead us. Or one sin in any area. We're never sure whether we'll be able to stop at that point if we willfully, willingly go forth and intentionally sin against God. We just don't know where that point will lead us. And that's a frightening thought. We never know what we will have to suffer for that one sin. How many people have become drunk and gotten into a car or, or something like that and their life has been taken and regretted it for the rest of their lives? 
between that memory continues to be with us. Let us therefore, dear ones, avoid the edge of the cliff and walk in our Christian lives a comfortable distance from the edge as we enjoy the material blessings in this world with which the Lord has blessed us to his glory and to his honor. The second question is this. What is the lawful use of wine? What is the lawful use of wine? Let us first consider the actual words that are used for wine and strong drink in Proverbs 20, verse 1. Each of these words, you'll find the word wine in the English text and strong drink, each of these words is used elsewhere in the scripture for a beverage that has the capacity to intoxicate and yet at the same time when used moderately, is a blessing given by God to man. <clears throat> the Hebrew word used for wine in Proverbs 20, verse 1, is yayin. To, to spell that out in English letters phonetically, it would be y-a-y-i-n, yayin. The same yayin, or wine, that intoxicated Noah Genesis 9.21 and intoxicated Lot Genesis 19 verses 32-35 was given by God as a gracious blessing to be enjoyed by his people according to Psalm 104 verses 14 and 15 where we read these words He that is God causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Notice in that passage that not only is wine here made for man's good but it also lists other wholesome items that God has created for man's good as well oil and bread all lumped together but this is the same word that we find in the other passages that has the capacity to intoxicate the Hebrew word used for strong drink in Proverbs 20 verse 1 is the word shikar again the English letters spelled phonetically would be S-H-E-K-A-R, shakar. The verbal form of this word actually refers to one who is intoxicated, a drunkard. <clears throat> so there is no doubt that the strong drink found in Proverbs 20, verse 1, was capable of intoxicating those who abused it. For the same shikar, or strong drink, that we find in Proverbs 20, verse 1, that leads to a drunken state in Proverbs 20, verse 1, and also, compare another passage, we won't look it up, but Isaiah 5.11 leads to a drunken state in Isaiah 5.11, is the same shikar, or strong drink, that is used as a, a drink offering, offered to the Lord in worship. In Numbers 28.7, 
and is to be lawfully consumed by God's people as a part of their rejoicing when they brought their tithes unto the Lord. That passage I would like for you just if you to turn there. That's Deuteronomy 14.26. That I think is, is a significant passage. I want you to note that both yayin, that is wine, and strong drink, shakar, are used in this passage. Deuteronomy 14.26 where it says, speaking of this feast of the tithe that they were to celebrate before the Lord, and thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. Before leaving these two words in the Old Testament, let me note this. That there was a perfectly good Hebrew word that referred to mere, the, the mere juice of grapes that might have been used in the Old Testament if we were merely talking about the unfermented juice of a grape. It's the word, the Hebrew word, mishra. Again, spelled M-I-S-H-R-A-H. Mishra. And it's found one time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Numbers 6.3, where it speaks of that concerning which the Levite was to separate himself. He was to separate himself from all forms of the grape. The grape itself, the raisin, a dried grape. He was to separate himself, according to the text, from, from alcoholic beverages, wine, strong drink. And he was to separate himself in English version, the King James Version, says, from the liquor of grapes. The liquor of grapes is merely the liquid of grapes. Many Jewish Hebrew commentators point out this is simply the unfermented juice of a good Hebrew word which meant the unfermented juice of the grape. Could not the Lord have used that in all the passages in the Bible wherein Yayin or Shikar is commended instead of using those words where those words are used many times to, to clearly show that it could intoxicate. And I would submit very clearly that could have been done. God could have very clearly made known to us that we were to only use grape juice and not that which was fermented by using this word. Let me just briefly consider with you that in the New Testament there is the predominant word that's used for wine there is the Greek word oinos. O-I-N-O-S. Oinos. And there we find the same thing with that word. When we read in Ephesians 5.18 and be not drunk with wine the word oinos. Don't become drunk with wine. Obviously, oinos could intoxicate. But it's the same word that we find in John chapter 2 that was miraculously created by the Lord Jesus Christ at the wedding feast, the king of Galilee. There we see 
in that particular passage in John chapter 2, that Mary, the mother of Christ, learned that there was no more wine and she informs Christ of the fact that they have run out of wine. Oinos. In verse 3. The Lord then commands that these large pots be filled with water and that the water that has now been miraculously transformed and changed into wine, oinos, be taken to the master of the feast that he may taste it. In verse 9. Now he did not know the source, the origin of this particular one. But he declares in John 2.10 every man at the beginning, that is at the beginning of the marriage feast, that set forth good wine, oinos. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine, oinos, until now. The master of the feast says the good wine or oinos is usually brought out first until men have well drunk and then the inferior wine is brought out afterwards. Why is the best wine served first and the inferior wine served last? Is it because they've become dulled in their senses due to drinking so much grape juice? The word used here, well drunk, well drunk, is the word, the Greek word, uh, the verb, methuo, M-E-T-H-E-U-O, methuo. It's only used six times in the New Testament, and in every single instance, it refers to one who's intoxicated and drunk. Every single instance. These are the, the, if you want to write them down, Matthew 24, 49, Acts 2.15 1 Corinthians 11.21 1 Thessalonians 5.7 and Revelation 17 verses 2 and 6 Furthermore, the Greek word for drunkard comes from that word methuo which is methusos the word for drunkard in the New Testament methusos and it's found in 1 Corinthians 5.11 and 1 Corinthians 6.10 only used two times. Thus the master of the feast says that the good wine, oinos, is first brought out because after becoming drunk to whatever degree or state of drunkenness that may mean, after they have become well drunk, after they have become intoxicated to some degree, they couldn't tell and distinguish the difference between the good wine, oinos, and the inferior wine, oinos, that was brought in later on. <clears throat> Obviously, Christ is not commending drunkenness at this point. Because as we've seen from beginning in, Christ, the word of God, condemns drunkenness. But it's interesting, in light of that happening in wedding feasts, that the Lord Jesus would yet create good oinos, which was capable of intoxicating. Because the master of the feast says, you save the good oinos until the last. He still places his blessing upon the lawful use of wine, even though it could intoxicate, and apparently 
had been uh, abused in marriage feasts. And I would also have you to consider that just as in Hebrew, so also in Greek, there is a word that refers to the unfermented juice of the grape. <clears throat> it is the word trux. Phonetically, it's spelled T-R-U-X, trux. This word is actually never used in the New Testament at all, but it is used in Greek literature outside of the Bible. Again, I would submit if there was a Greek word which might have been used to distinguish non-alcoholic grape juice from alcoholic wine, why did the Holy Spirit not choose to use that word so as to make it perfectly clear that only unfermented grape juice is lawful for man to use? To the contrary, the Holy Spirit chose to use a word for wine, namely oinos, which has the ability to intoxicate. Now, there are those who wish to cite some ancient uh, practice uh, of diluting wine with water before consumption. They must recognize that if you dilute wine with water, there's still going to be alcoholic content, however small. There's still going to be alcoholic content in that wine. If the problem is with the alcohol, then that doesn't do away with the problem. Furthermore, it must not have been, if it was diluted, it must not have been diluted too much because they were able to get drunk on the stuff. But thirdly, if you want to turn your Bible to Isaiah 1.22, it seems to me we have a, a formidable problem to overcome here because this comes from the mouth of God as to the very dilution of wine, diluting it with water, and we kind of get God's opinion, and I would submit to you, therefore, the ancient practice was not to dilute wine, but was to drink it fermented without diluting it. Here we find a passage where God is condemning Jerusalem for its corruption, for its impurity, for its unfaithfulness, by way of its harlotries and murders. And in verse 22, the Lord likens their corruption, their impurity, to two things, analogously. The Lord says, Thy silver is become dross. Thy wine mixed with water. In other words, what the Lord is saying is that just as dross corrupts good silver, and just as water corrupts good wine, so your harlotries and your murders have corrupted you, O Jerusalem. Now, God speaking in this passage, it would not appear that God has at least a problem with undiluted wine when he says you really make your wine corrupt and impure by diluting it with water, not using it in, in, its, in its full course, retaining the alcoholic content within it. Well, I would submit to you or ask a question before moving on to our last question. How is wine then to use lawfully? 
Let me just give you several ways in which wine is to be used lawfully. Wine is used lawfully according to God in his word, dear ones, under these conditions. Number one, when it is used to the glory of God, according to 1 Corinthians 10.31, just like we use food to the glory of God, so we should use wine to the glory of God. Secondly, when it is enjoyed as a gift from God, just as food is enjoyed as a gift from God, just as money is enjoyed as a gift from God, just as our homes and our, our clothing, as our cars and all the other material things that God has given to us are enjoyed as a gift from God. According to 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 through 5, 1 Timothy 6, 17, where we find again, 1 Timothy 6, 17, that God has given to us all things to enjoy. Thirdly, when wine is used medicinally, it is used lawfully. According to 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul commands Timothy to use a little wine for his many frequent uh, stomach problems. Fourthly, when it is used sacramentally, in the Lord's Supper, it is not unlawfully used, but lawfully used. Just as it was used in the Passover, the drink offerings were wine. They were strong drink. They were alcoholic in content. Just as they ate and drank at the, at the a feast, and they brought their tithes to the Lord. You see the, the phrase that's found in, in Matthew 26, uh, 26.29 in it parallel passages in the New Testament where it says the fruit of the vine was a, a specific Jewish expression that is found in the Mishnah for sacramental wine used on those occasions. The fruit of the vine didn't refer to grape juice. It referred to sacramental wine. It was a particular expression used by them in those instances. So the Lord Jesus is simply using culturally the expression that all Jews at that time would recognize was fermented wine. And finally, wine is used lawfully when it is used moderately. According to the principle we find in Galatians 5.23, one of the fruit of the Spirit is temperance or moderation or self-control. When we use it accordingly, we are not abusing wine, but using it lawfully. Are all people required, therefore, to use wine just because it is lawful to be used? Absolutely not. Except within the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that qualification, God authorizes the use. I would submit of wine in that instance. But not in not privately. Not socially, they're not required to use wine if they don't want to. Some may not like the taste of wine. Uh, some may be allergic to wine. And some may not be able to control their use of wine and think it better under those circumstances to avoid the private and social use of wine altogether. So in those instances, I would submit that wine does not need to be consumed if one does not choose or desire to do so. The last question we'll cover very quickly today is this. Are there further restrictions to the lawful use of wine? 
Here I simply want to note that we must be careful that we do not take a liberty that is ours in Jesus Christ and abuse it in such a way that it becomes a means of leading others to sin or leading others to bring, uh, leading others to reproach the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we may do if we flaunt our liberty to use wine before others. And there are two, two examples of this that I would submit to you. First of all, there are professing Christians who may have a weak conscience, believing at this point in time that it is unlawful or sinful for them to use alcoholic beverages. Perhaps they have come to those conclusions due to what they were taught as a child, perhaps due to a misunderstanding of Scripture, or due to um, some experience, some abuse that they've seen or been a part of, whether in their own life or the lives of others. But they have a weak conscience. They, they, they believe that it would be wrong for them to, to partake of wine at this point, even if it is not actually condemned by God himself in the Word. Their conscience has been misinformed. And the Bible tells us in Romans 14.23, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. Even though it's not sinful in itself to partake of wine for them because they believe it's sinful, they would be violating their conscience. So how do we treat them, these brethren? I would suggest that we would take the approach that Paul mentions in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, of patiently seeking to instruct and to teach them that wine may be used moderately to the glory of God according to the scripture, which is our supreme and infallible rule for faith and practice. <clears throat> Until they move from having a weak conscience to having a strong conscience where they realize it's not sinful to use alcoholic beverages. They may not choose to use them, but they realize it's no longer sinful. Well, they move from being weak in conscience then to being strong in conscience. Until that time, we should, I would submit to you, restrict ourselves from exercising our liberty in their presence before them as not to set a stumbling block for them where they would prematurely partake of wine to their own sin. However, this caveat, this word of caution, this weakness of conscience that we have just discussed, dear ones, if it's not removed after much forbearance, instruction, love, and kindness, cannot and must not be allowed to exercise tyranny over the consciences of the strong within the church so that that becomes the rule rather than the exception. When the consciences of the weak indefinitely and permanently become a rule, we have cast away then our liberty in Jesus Christ. I would submit to you. This would be, I believe, a sinful extreme to which we could possibly go, but must not go, if we're not careful. There's another category of professing Christians in closing that I would, would uh, pose before you. There may be those who, as we've said, have abused wine to such a degree that they voluntarily 
abstain from all personal and social use of wine, except, as we've said, sacramental use of wine, the Lord's Supper, which is authorized by God. Likewise, we should not set a stumbling block before these dear brothers or sisters if they find the social use of wine to be a tempting or uncomfortable situation for them. The principle in all such cases that I believe we should follow is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12-13, where we read these words. <clears throat> but when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their uh, weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Very important to note. You not only sin against that brother, you sin against the Lord Jesus Christ who has redeemed them. Wherefore, if me make my brother to offend, that is to fall and to sin, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. I think Paul is using a degree of hyperbole there to say in effect, we should not allow that which is a liberty to us to lead others into sin. Again, the, the rule is to instruct, to teach, to love, patiently for good. But there comes a point at which, again, we must challenge the conscience of others. In which we say, we have given you sufficient information and knowledge, but you persist in an obstinate view and not receiving the truth of God's word. And I think at that point we must basically separate ourselves and say that's a sinful that's no longer a weak conscience. That's an obstinate and a sinful conscience. We have a proper view of our liberty in Christ when we love our neighbor as ourselves and when we do not flaunt our liberty before those who are weak in conscience or weak in self-control. When we plot our liberty in such cases, I would submit we actually play the part of the enemy in leading others into sin. Dear ones, our love for God and our brethren is manifested in how we use our liberty before one another to build up, to edify others in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, I would say, turn the tables around. How would you want others to treat you if you were in that situation. Would you simply want them to run roughshod over your conscience? Or would you want them to patiently, lovingly to indulge you for a period of time when you were instructed to care enough to teach you the truth? To challenge you to walk therein. Let us do unto others as we would have others do unto us, and thereby carry the burden of one another, fulfilling the law of Christ. Let us stand together in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.